The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Um, got some really exciting news for you, and this time it doesn't involve sport, all right? But four weeks ago, Natalie and I, Natalie's downstairs with the kids in the kids' church, we found out that we're expecting our fourth child. <laughs> we were shocked, big time, like, because we sold all our baby stuff. We got... Zero baby stuff left, but the girl was really, really excited, and so we were excited too. So Natalie's due 1st of September, and so if you've got baby stuff, please chuck it our way. That would be really, really helpful. Okay, let's come around the word. I've just buttered you up, all right, because I can say anything now in this sermon. You're like, he's having a fourth kid. I mean, come on. Cut him some slack. All right, so this is what we're going to do today is we're thinking about money in this series, Wise with Wealth, and really the guiding principle of this series and what the, the, the note that we've wanted to strike again and again in this series is this. This is the principle that perspective informs practice. Can you say that with me? Perspective informs, even transforms, practice. Meaning, if we have a biblical perspective on money, it's more likely that we'll be wise with wealth. And being wise with wealth will obviously cause God's heart to smile. We'll be more beneficial to others. We'll help others and also help ourselves. And so this is the perspective. If you want to put this principle in the reverse, in the negative, without having a biblical viewpoint or perspective on cash, our cash practices will likely crash. That is, we will go adrift with money. We'll probably overspend or oversave. Oversave in the Bible is called hoarding, and that's not a great wise practice. And so what we need is God's mind on the matter. We need to come to the Word to gain a heavenly perspective on money. And so as we come to this sermon, we can stand face-to-face with another perspective intending to help us be wise with wealth. And this is the perspective, and this is the title of this sermon. We are stewards, not owners. We are stewards, not owners. In other words, now you're going to feel the sting of this statement. God has commissioned us, commanded us, called us as Christians to be money caretakers, not money takers. Not his money takers. We're called to be stewards. And so as we think about financial stewardship this morning, what I want to do is wrap this sermon with two big questions to help us. And the first question is the where question. Where does wise, good, faithful stewardship begin? Where does wise management begin? And of course, the answer is by first finding out and understanding what the term stewardship actually means. We're not going to be a wise steward if we don't understand what stewardship means. The Bible, in a number of places, calls us Christians stewards. Jesus twice in two of his parables. In Matthew 25, Luke 16, the apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he calls us stewards. And we ought to be faithful stewards, but what do they do? Well, at this stage in the message, I'm going to go a bit Greeky on you. Okay, I'm going to resemble the dad in the classic movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You know the guy? 
He takes every English word and he traces the root of that word to some Greek word. And so when we come to this term stewardship, that's exactly what we need to do to find out what it means. And so the root, the origin of this term stewardship is the Greek word oikonomos. Everyone say with me, oikonomos. Oikonomos. There you go, you've got some Greek under your belt. Oikonomos. Now I'm really going to resemble the dad here. Okay. This term, oikonomos, interestingly, is made up of two words, two Greek words pressed together, put together. The first word is oikos, and the second one, nomos. Oikos is the Greek word for home or house. Nomos is the Greek word for law or rule. And so when you pull these words together, stewardship, oikonomos, this is what it literally means, the rule of the home. The role of the house. And in the ancient world and in biblical times, a steward was therefore someone who was charged with the responsibility of managing the affairs of the ruler or the owner of the house, of the home. And when we come to the Bible, this is exactly what we see stewardship is. As Christians, those called of God, we've been charged to take very good care of his matters, his business, including his cash. He is the owner, in other words, of all things, and we are to be wise managers, wise stewards. This is why one writer by the name of Randy Alcorn, he defines stewardship this way. He says, we can simply define a steward as someone, an owner, God's the owner, entrusts with the management of his assets. That's a daunting thought. Who's with me? So this is almighty God. He's saying, okay, I'm going to entrust my assets over to you, my people, the church. This perspective is where wise stewardship begins. This perspective, God, you're the owner, is the catalyst that actually helps us become wise, faithful, better stewards. Randy Alcorn continues. He says, quote, there can be no understanding of stewardship or economos until there's an acute awareness of ownership. Do you hear that? Not just an awareness, okay, God, you own it, but an acute awareness, deep within the heart. The steward cannot do his job well, he says, without clearly grasping who owns and who, and who does not own what is entrusted to his care. Last week when Alex Cook was here, did a fantastic job in the sermon and in the seminar, really, really helpful. But if you remember, his first point was just this. His first spiritual point, the principle, is that we've got to be those who are thoroughly aware, uh, acutely aware in our hearts that God is the owner of all things because this is where wise stewardship begins. In this message, I just want to drill down a bit more into this principle because, again, it's something that we really need to get in our hearts. So a couple of passages here. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, notice, and what? Everything in it. Everything. That's a comprehensive statement there. Everything in the earth is his. In Deuteronomy 10, 14, the lens widens, and this is what our author says. He says, look, the highest heavens and the earth. Now, when the authors of Scripture do that, they put heavens and earth together. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about the cosmos. They're talking about the entire universe. Everything we can conceive of, everything we can see, and all that we cannot see, the universe, notice what he goes on to say. The heavens and the earth and everything in it belong to the Lord your God. 
Incredible, what a staggering statement. The vast galaxies, all, the, all belong to him. And so this is the logic of scripture. Since God is the maker of all things, he is therefore the master of all things. He's master over all things. He is the owner. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, at least I own myself. He owns the earth. He owns the universe. But Paul says, no, no, he also owns you. If you're a believer, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, listen to what he says. You do not belong to yourself. It's like, ah, I wanted to belong to myself. He says, no, if you're a believer, God, you belong to him, for you've been bought at a high price. And, of course, this high price was the highest price, the price of Jesus' blood. So in the Bible, God has dual ownership of us, dual ownership through creation and also through redemption, through the blood of Jesus. But more than that, he owns everything on the planet, everything in the universe. It was Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch statesman. I just put this in for you, Grace. A Dutch statesman and, and also a former prime minister of Holland in the early 1900s. He famously said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. And it's not a selfish mine, like the kind of mine I hear at home, like, this is my dolly, and it's a big fight. This is a sovereign mine. I rule over all. I own all. And it's not until we actually realize this, grasp this, become acutely aware of this truth, that we can actually be faithful, wise stewards. This is the perspective. God is the owner. We are stewards. And when we get this, the way we see and relate to money is influenced for the better. Let me illustrate this. Anyone got here a pen or a pencil I can borrow? Layla. You're the only one that uses pencils these days. Everyone's typing on their phones. Thanks. Hopefully they're typing the sermon notes on their phone. All right. Thank you. This is a lovely little pencil. It's got dogs on it. It's beautiful. Now, this is Layla's pencil. I need to put my mic down. I should have the thing, and the thing doesn't fit my ear. I've got my ears way too small. Thank you. Now, this is a, this is a really pencil. Just remember, I'm having my fourth kid, right? <laughs> now, I know what some of you are thinking. Even though you're smiling at me, you're like, how could you do such a thing, Lewis? It's a beautiful pencil with a little doggy on it. It's Layla's only, well, it's the best pencil. You do that to someone else's property. I thought you were a nice pastor. I thought this was a nice church. Let me let you in on a secret. Layla and I conspired together before the service. <laughs> that was actually my pencil. My little doggy pencil that sat in my office is now broken. Just to illustrate this point, what right have we to mismanage someone else's property? God's property. Every time we're stingy, you know what that's like to God? Snap. Stop. When he gives us money, he says it's more best to give than it is to receive. And yet we go, no, I don't like that motto. I actually prefer it's more more blessed to receive and hoard. He's like, snap. Stomp. Every time we're frivolous with his cash, we become spendthrifts. That's exactly that way. We're mismanaging God's funds, his property. 
challenging. Two points of application I just want to fly through real quickly here as we think about the own, God's ownership of all things. Number one, fire yourself. All right, Step, Go into the office of your heart and fire yourself from being the owner of your, your stuff because it's not your stuff. Everything in your bank, everything in your wallet, clothes on your back, everything you own, all your investments, property is his. And so fire yourself. Say to yourself, I'm not the owner. Oh, I'm a CEO. I'm an employee. And be the best CEO out there, okay? Be the best employer under God out there. That pleases his heart when we use his funds wisely, generously, strategically. So fire yourself. Number two, beat this truth. God is owner. I am a steward into your head. Beat it. Beat it. I'm not going to sing Michael Jackson's song. Beat it into your head. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, 16th century reformer, he said, with God's truths, his doctrines, that's exactly what we've got to do. We've got to keep pounding them into our head because God's truths have a tendency just to fall out. You know, we put it in our head, oh yeah, God's the owner, I'm a steward, and then it falls out. No, 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 I'm the owner. And he answers to me, and you've you got to put it back in. God's the owner, I'm the steward. Now, you've got to find your way to help you do just that. To remember, remember that God is the owner of all things. I remember many years ago, sorry, sorry, do- doggy. I remember, I remember a number of years ago, Nat and I had, had only been married about four months, and we attended a Christian stewardship course, a financial course. It was really helpful, put out by Crown Ministries. And we were sitting there, and we were in a small group, and one of the exercises, one of the activities was to help us to do just this, to remember that God is the owner of all things. There was this wonderful Christian guy, he was a simple guy, but he had this suggestion. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a pack of post-it notes, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to take them, and on each one, I'm going to write, God owns this. God owns this. God owns this. And then I'm going to take these post-it notes and put them everywhere. I'm going to put one on my wardrobe. God owns my clothes. I'm going to put one on my sun visor. God owns my car. I'm going to put one on my toothbrush. God owns my toothbrush. Now, I'm not suggesting for the moment that you go and do likewise, all right? Don't insult your intelligence. But I love the principle. I love the heart. That was his way of trying to remember that God is the owner of all things and that he was only a steward. And so maybe for you, the way you're going to remember this critical thing is by reciting and memorizing the ownership passages we just looked at. Psalm 24 verse 1, Deuteronomy 10 verse 14. Because you know, when we do, when we memorize passages, scripture, the Holy Spirit can move so powerfully through the memorized word. And if we're not memorizing the word, well, maybe we're going to be unwise, not only in terms of how we use money, God's money, but all life. And so that's probably a good place to start. Or, or you can do what I'm calling the title deed exchange. All right, You can grab one of these on your way of church if you want one of these. But basically, this is something for you to do in the presence of God in prayer by yourself. Or if you want accountability, you can do it in your connect group if you want. And basically, this is acknowledging that God owns everything. Everything. And you just sign it over to him, back over to him. And you can put the date on there. You can keep this safe. It can be between you and God. Again, this is a little something you can do to help you remember. Oh, yes, right. God is the owner of everything. This is such a key, key perspective. 
And that's why I've drilled down into it and I keep going over and over and over again because I think this is such a huge catalyst. If we get this, if we're acutely aware of this, if we grasp this, then I think we'll become better stewards of God's things. That's the first question, the where. Second question, the how. How do we become better stewards of God's money? How do we become better stewards of God's assets? In addition to what I've just said, relinquishing, surrendering control of stuff over to God, as Christians, we need to implement what I'm calling a three-pronged strategy. Three-pronged strategy. I could mention many things here about how to be more wise with wealth, wise with God's money, but I just want to highlight three things. Now, I'm using the term here, strategy, a three-pronged strategy, strategically. And the reason is because if we're going to master money, instead of being mastered by money, we can't afford to be passive. We can't afford just to lie down and say, I care, you know, I'll get the better of money. No, no, no. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that money is mammon. He says you can't serve love both God and he uses the word mammon. Mammon was an Egyptian god. And so Jesus is talking about some power, some demonic spiritual power. And money wants to grip your heart, wants to coil around your heart like a snake and crush you. And so we can't be passive. We've got to be strategic. We've got to be militant. We've got to be intentional. And so here's the first of the three prongs. You're going to love this. Tithing. The temperature in the place just went up. Tithing. Now, this is not going to be a sermon on tithing. You can breathe a sigh of relief. But maybe we do need sermons on tithing, maybe more than one, because, you know, when you look around the Christian church nationally, internationally, there's a lot of confusion about tithing, and there seems to be a heck of a lot of reluctance as well to tithe. And so just a couple of biblical reflections here on tithing to help us be better with God's cash. Number one, tithing, as the name suggests, is a tenth. Literally, to tithe means a tenth part, a tenth part, a tithe, 10%. And the Bible says, Proverbs chapter 3, that we're to give to God first, right? So that's gross income, not net income, but gross. Remember when Jesus said, you give to God and to Caesar? That's the principle, that's the idea. You give 10% first to God, not 2%, not 5%. In a room this big, I know some of you are not tithing. That's how the stats go, 10%. Now, if you're not, this is going to be challenging. Well, I love you enough to challenge you. It's robbing God. It's stealing from God. Malachi chapter 3. God says to the people, you're robbing from me. And they say, what do you you mean we're stealing from you? We're doing all the right things. We're singing all the right songs. We're doing all the right religious things. He says, you're withheld the tithe. You're not supporting those who serve you. You're stealing from me. Now, listen. We would never, ever dream of stealing at church, right? So there you are, imagine this. You're sitting there listening to the sermons, the boring sermons on tithing, and you notice that the person next to you has fallen asleep, not your spouse on the other side, and you look down, and you see a little green thing. It's almost speaking to you, and you reach down, and you grab that thing. No one else is looking, and you pocket that hundred. You think, this is awesome, awesome. I'm going to come back to church next week. This is great. You wouldn't do that. It's such a stupid illustration, right? But listen to this. We wouldn't do it in the holy sanctuary. But guess what? When we withhold the tithe, that's what we do each 
Sunday. We reach into God's pocket, into his wallet, and we take it from him. Wow. That's God's language, not my language, not my opinion. That's God. You don't tithe, you're robbing from me. And so now that you'll hate me, don't forget I'm having a fourth kid. Second thing. So tithing is one-tenth. Secondly, tithing is the training wheels of giving. The training wheels. That is, it's a great place to start. You get your kid, you don't just put your child on the bike and say, yeah, off you go. I mean, you don't smash you into a tree. No, you put training wheels on, and it's the same when it comes to giving. That's tithing. Training wheels. But notice, everyone progresses, right, to a bigger bike. Go beyond the tithe. It's interesting, when you do the math, in the Old Testament, they gave a lot more than 10%. They gave 10% to the Levites and the priests, but there were free will offerings and there were tithing elsewhere. It was almost like 30%. And so what makes us think as new covenant believers that we should give less than them? They didn't know about the cross. They hadn't experienced the life of the Holy Spirit. Yet we claim we have experienced those things and know these things. And yet we can struggle to give. Or even when we do give a tithe, it's like, oh good, I've got God off my back. And now I can do what I want with the rest. Oh, that's only me? Oh, sorry. So tithe. If you're not tithing, let me encourage you, get training wheels. If you are tithing, let me encourage you, get a bigger bike. Right? Progress to a bigger bike. But... On this matter, let's not be like the Crusaders. You know the Crusaders? Supposedly Christian, I don't think they were. But the the Crusaders, you know what they used to do before they would go to one of their holy wars, one of their holy battles? They would go through the waters of baptism. And what they would do, they would do this. They would say, okay, Lord, you know, they would probably sing one of our songs, I surrender, or go through the waters of baptism. Lord, I'm going to dedicate everything over to you and go under the water. And yet they would keep one thing out of the water. You know what that thing was? Their sword. Their sword. As if to say, okay, we give you everything, but I'm not going to give you this because I'm going to do horrible things with this thing. Now, we as Christians can do that, but with our wallets. You know, we can sing our songs, oh, I love you, Lord, give you my heart, give you my I surrender all. We've got our arm up in worship, but everyone thinks, oh, look, they're praising God. But metaphorically speaking, we're holding above the water our wallets. I'll give you everything except this. I remember, quick story, not in my notes, but I feel like I need to share this just to be upfront and honest with you. When I became a Christian... I fell in love with Christ, like really, but it took quite a long time for me to get grace. And still, I mean, I'm on the road of grace, trying to discover and experience more of the wonder of God's grace. But I remember going back to England, okay, I got saved in Australia, going back to England, and tithing time came. And I was premeditated. You know what I did? I put 50 pence in a massive, great big envelope. Because I thought, wow, this is going to look cool. Because if I fold this thing up, it's going to look like a massive wad. <laughs> and I pulled that thing out. And the, I did do it. And the bag came around, and I put it in. Boom. And everyone thought, man, that guy must be so generous. It was 50 pence in there. 50 pence. It's like, I don't even know how much it is now. I've been there for so long, I forgot the conversion rate. Nothing. It's taken me a long time to understand this principle. As I understood grace, grace, grace. Oh, yeah. It made my heart more soft to God. And more generous. And so, come on, this is the first thing we need to do tithe. 
tithe. Secondly, self-control. This is the second prong, self-control. So tithing, first prong, second prong, self-control. R.C. Sproul, he went to be with the Lord three years ago, great theologian, great teacher. He said this, a key to good, wise stewardship is delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. I think this is what Jesus in part is getting at when he says to us in Matthew chapter 6, hey, don't store up treasure here, but, but store up treasure there in heaven. I think what he's saying is, hey, if you delay gratification now, you'll enjoy more satisfaction there in, in glory. And so to, to help us implement this, kind of live this out, flesh this out, delayed gratification, self-control in order to be wise stewards, I'm going to take you through four quick questions. These questions were put out originally by John Wesley, the great um, Methodist preacher, and minister, listen to what he says here. These are his questions. We can take these and own them ourselves. In spending this money, first question, I can see we're going to run over time. Is that okay if I run a little bit over time? I can see we'll. In spending this money, am I acting as if I owned it? See, what's occupying his mind and heart? God's the owner of all things. In spending this money, am I acting as if I owned it? Or am I acting as if the Lord's... Or am I acting as the Lord's trustee? The ownership question. Second question. What scripture passage compels me to spend this money in this way? In other words, what he's getting at is, Lord, in your word, do you command me to use your assets, your, your money in a certain way? I'm about to make a purchase. I'm thinking about using the money this way. Does your word back it up? If not, then John Wesley would say, well, then don't spend it that way. Third question. Can I offer up this purchase as a sacrifice to the Lord? In other words, what he's getting at here is, will the Lord be pleased with this purchase? Will this purchase or investment cause my heavenly Father's heart to smile? Fourth question. I can send you these questions if you're trying to madly take them down with your pencils. <laughs> Will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? So notice where his mind is. His mind is up. You're the owner. His mind and his heart certainly in to the word of God, assessing his money management through the lens of scripture, through that filter, but also his mind is looking forward to the resurrection, to the judgment seat of Christ, which I'm not going to go into because that's going to be next week's sermon. But clearly, John Wesley is wearing his what would Jesus do wristband. What would Jesus do here? This will help us go a long way in helping us become a bit more shrewd, a bit more wise with Money. I'm not pretending for a moment this is easy going through these types of questions. And maybe you're thinking, seeing and thinking, well, this, you know, this is going to make me think. And that's the point. Biblical wisdom is not, hey, here it is on a plate, a nice silver spoon. No, biblical wisdom is you've got to think, you've got to pray, you've got to get in groups of other Christians and hold each other accountable and, and pray for discernment. This is biblical wisdom. And so these questions will help you to that end. So first prong, what? Tithing. Second Self-control, delayed gratification. And the third, the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue, which is what? The heart. Your heart and my heart. You see, money problems are not spending problems. They're not budget problems. 
Money problems are heart problems. Heart problems. Notice what one writer says, Paul Tripp, he's a Christian counselor, really helpful. He says this. He says, a budget can expose what your heart truly values. I guess that's a good reason to do a budget. But a budget has no power to make you worship the right king. You hear that? It can just expose which king you're serving. Am I really serving King Jesus or King Money? He continues, a budget can give you useful spending guidelines, but it has no power to restrain your fickle, wandering heart. In other words, our budgets will become bludgets. Like we will bludge our budgets if our hearts are chasing after something or being driven by something that only Jesus can give you. That's the principle. And so we need to think about how to solve the money problem, which is really the heart problem. He shared this maybe two, three weeks ago, the heart's idols. And so I want to just, in brief, speak about two things here to address the real problem, the heart problem. And the first is this. We must be convinced, all of us must be convinced that our income follows our heart. Our wallets follow our heart. Our hearts have this massive gravitational pull. And when I say heart, by the way, for those of you who might be new or exploring Christian, I don't mean the ticker. The heart in Hebrew thinking is the seat of your mind, will, and emotions. Your heart is the control center of the real you, in other words. And so what your heart loves and treasures, well, income's going to follow your heart. It's going to follow your heart. For example, someone who values approval, say. All right, that's their addiction. They, they love approval, people's applause, their positive verdicts. You're going to use money. Maybe you're going to spend money you don't really have to buy that thing in order to impress someone because you want to be on the in crowd. You need people's approval. And so you might end up buying a house that you can't afford, maybe a house you don't even need, a car that you can't afford, maybe a car you, can't, uh, need, you don't need, or some other item. Why? Because of this heart treasure, namely approval. What about this one? Someone who values ease or comfort or entertainment. Again, you're going to use money a certain way. You're going to possibly spend money you don't have to buy that thing, purchase that thing that you believe is going to scratch your entertainment-addicted heart. A new technology, a new holiday. I want to go on another. Now, I'm not condemning technology. Don't hear me say that. But if your heart is chasing off these things, these things are prized in your heart, then, of course, you're always going to use money unwisely. What about this one? Someone who values security or safety. Of course, this person is going to use money in a certain way. Differently, maybe maybe they don't give. They don't use the money that they do have for generous reasons. They hoard it. They store it up to pad out their existence, to fortify their life. And maybe they might do unwise things with money so that they can feel secure. Oh, my life is secure now because money. You may have heard the statement, we are what we eat. Uh, that's kind of not that true. You are what you eat. Maybe physically, you are what you eat. You are what your heart loves. That's the, that's the truth. Your heart, you are what your heart treasures, what your heart craves. And so if we're going to get anywhere with money, if we're going to solve the money issue, we've got to be convinced that our hearts need transformation. They need the touch of God. That's the first thing. Second thing, these deep cravings, these heart issues... 
all the things I've just mentioned, approval, influence, control, ease, comfort. Listen, this is really, really important. They cannot be removed. They must be replaced. They cannot be removed. They must. Why? Because the heart, as I just said, this, this seat of the real you is always desiring, always chasing. There's always going to be something or someone sitting on your heart as king. It can never stay in a vacuum. And so what we really need here is heart renovation. That's the right word, heart renovation, because that's what you do when you renovate, right? You go into your room, you grab some old things, and you chuck them out, but you don't leave your room unoccupied. You don't say after you've chucked everything out, hey, Pristov, I've finished, okay? No, what do you do? You get new stuff, and you put it in. Well, it's exactly what needs to take place in our hearts as Christians. There needs to be heart renovation where these old, ugly things, these idols, these false treasures are removed, subverted, replaced with something that is dazzling in beauty, a true treasure. You know, 200 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Thomas Chalmers. He was a Scottish theologian. He was a Puritan. And he understood the human heart. Listen to what he said. This is profound and so insightful. And if we would get this, we would understand how to manage money, how to master money. Listen to what he says. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, an old treasure, is by the expulsive power of a new one. That's big. I'll say it again. The only way to rid the heart of an old affection, these treasures, these issues, these problems that we're looking at here, is by the expulsive power, a new treasure that has almighty power that kicks off the idol of your heart and replaces it and is crowned king then. Of course, the question is, what is the most treasure, dazzling treasure that has this expulsive power? It's this. It's the treasure of knowing, like deep within, the treasure of knowing what it cost Jesus to make you his treasure. It's the treasure of knowing what it cost Jesus to make you his treasure. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, this is the situation. He wants to stir some Christians. He wants to move and motivate some Christians to be generous. The, the situation, the context, is that there were some Christians in Jerusalem. They were doing it really tough. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't wade in with apostolic authority. He doesn't just burst in and say, hey, guys, this is the situation. I'm the apostle, and I'm commanding you to give, all right? You owe it to them. You're Gentiles, they're Jews. The blessing has flown through the Jews. You, you owe it to them, okay? You do it. So he doesn't apply pressure on their will, and he doesn't try and tweak their emotions with all these stories, nor does he say, hey, um, just look to the example of Jesus Christ. That's good, but what does he do? He goes straight for the heart. Listen to his language here in closing. He says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You see what he's doing here? He's reframing the gospel using financial language to stir them deep within. He's saying, hey, you know this, but I want you to be reminded of this. And by way of extension, he would say the same to each of us here today. He would say, look, Jesus had wealth, infinite wealth, beyond description, beyond bearing. And if he would have hung on to that, 
clung on to his wealth, you would have died in your poverty forever because you were spiritually bankrupt before him because of your sin, because of these heart's idols. And yet what did Jesus do? He didn't cling on to his wealth. No, he chose to become poor. He laid aside his wealth and he didn't notice, he didn't tithe his blood, he didn't tithe his life. He gave us his whole life on the cross. He became poor, he was bankrupt. So that we, through him, would become rich, really rich, knowing the forgiveness of God, knowing that we're the children of God. You see, when this hits the heart, registers within, guess what happens? Heart renovation takes place. This is the expulsive power. This is the new affection, knowing what it costs Jesus to make you, to make me his treasure. Tim Keller says this. I promise this is the last thing. Don't you hate when pastors do that, preachers? We're coming in for a landing and we go off again and come round circle. When you see him dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Can we just, can I I just say something? Can we just forget about the time just for a minute? Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and and it will cease to be the, the currency of your significance and security. Why? Because Jesus will be. And you will want to bless others with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous person, into a generous people. See, when this happens, this heart renovation happens, guess what? We will be those who tithe. We'll probably go way beyond the tithe as well. We will be those who delay gratification. We will be those who are happy to acknowledge the ownership of God of all things. In fact, we will delight in that, that he is the owner, he is the savior who occupies center stage in your heart. And you'll be happy, we'll be happy to shine the spotlight of his cash on him. How about I pray? Father, thank you. Lord God, for your incredible words. Lord, help us believe. Lord, forgive me, Lord, for saying things maybe not with the heart of Christ. Lord, I pray, Lord, that what I have said, the truth of what I said would stick, would absorb into each of our hearts, Lord. That, Lord, you are the owner. God, help us, help us be good, faithful, wise, generous stewards of your things. Lord, we really want to be that because we have been filled with your life, filled with your love, filled with your spirit. And so, Lord God, I pray, oh God, that you would enable us to be wise with wealth. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.